everyone welcome to episode four of coffee and killers aka mommy self-care what can i say about this week it's a large mix of frustration and moments of parental hope in there a little bit um so we currently have 10 children i know i know that's so many kids this many children was never in the plan. I'm sure I'll get into how that happened another time, but today is not about that. Today, I am going to talk about my latest two that have joined the mix in the midst of this COVID craziness. You see, on Thursday before school closed due to this pandemic, we welcomed back into our home a child that was in our care six years ago and her little sister. While it's always devastating when a child is removed from their parents, we were thrilled that this little love found her way back to us. Um, she's always been the one child that we have been worried about over the years that had been reunited with her bio family. Now we know she's safe and that's an amazing feeling. That said, all new placements come with that period of learning. Learning each other, learning new rules and expectations, learning all of the different personalities in the home. For us, we're learning the kids' likes and dislikes, triggers, trauma history, coping skills or lack thereof, reading levels, ability to complete self-care tasks like brushing teeth, showering, using the toilet correctly. Um, even something as simple as getting dressed can be a challenge. Do they have nightmares? Do they wet the bed? Are they allergic to anything? Will they hurt themselves? The other kids? The pets? Luckily for us, with this placement, we have some knowledge of their background, but typically when a new foster care placement enters your home, all we know is their name. Um, we don't know birthdays. Sometimes we don't even know last names. Um, we don't know how to spell their names. We don't know who their teachers are. We don't always know what school they go to if they go to school. Um, let alone whether or not they have any life-threatening allergies. So here we are. The kids come on a Thursday. I send the oldest off to school on a Friday. And then on Sunday, we get word that schools are closed until further notice. Suddenly, not only are we maneuvering a new sibling placement, but I am now a stay-at-home mom of 10 children, cooking, cleaning, playing, and now teaching. Luckily for me, I'm a certified teacher, so I do have some skills in my tool belt, but nothing prepares you for eight school-age kiddos, a two-year-old, and a new-to-our-home preschooler with a developmental age of also around two, all while at the same time maintaining normal household tasks. Oh, and we're not able to go to parks or other businesses to get our wiggles out, so that's fun. So that's where we stand over here. I'm exhausted, like struggling to keep my eyes open exhausted, but I'm trying hard to think of this time as time together as a family and look at it as a blessing with a big tiresome bow placed perfectly on top. Which brings us to today's coffee. Thanks to recent closures, our local Starbucks is no longer serving via their drive-through. Moment of silence. 
So to make my Starbucks-loving basic bitch self happy, I made a mock cinnamon dolce latte at home. Today I used two shots of espresso because 10 kids, but you can alter that to your taste. Uh, you can use leftover coffee if you have it and don't want it to go to waste. About half a cup would do well in this recipe. Um, so you'll need half a cup of your regular coffee or a shot or two of espresso, a cup of hot vanilla almond milk, a quarter of a teaspoon of vanilla extract, and half a tablespoon of light brown sugar half a teaspoon of cinnamon and a pinch of nutmeg. Mix all that goodness up in your mug, top it with some whipped cream and a sprinkle of cinnamon. And for me, because I love my sugar and I'm stress eating a little bit, a drizzle of caramel. Now, on to our story. Please note that this episode is especially graphic and viewer discretion is advised. In February of 2000, police entered the home of Catherine Knight after a colleague of her boyfriend, as well as a concerned neighbor, called the police to the home. The scene was one so gruesome, so horrifying, that many officers left the force immediately following their discovery, and those who stayed have undergone decades of therapy in order to cope with the images that continue to haunt them. Catherine and her twin sister, Joy, were the product of a scandalous affair between her mother, Barb, and a local abattoir by the name of Ken. The reason this was so scandalous was because A. Aberdeen is a small town in New South Wales, Australia, with a population of about 1,700 in the year 2000. So everyone around town knows everyone around town, which means nothing stays secret for long. And B. Ken was a friend and co-worker of Barbara's husband, Jack Rowan, at the local meat market where the men kill and prepare meat for consumption. Prior to the affair and subsequent pregnancy, Jack and Barbara had four sons. They appeared to have a typical marriage until the affair rocked the conservative town. Upon their split, two of the sons stayed with their father and two were sent to live with an aunt. Ken and Barb it's taking all of my willpower, by the way, to not call them Ken and Barbie. Married and had a total of four children together. After Jack's death, two of Barb's boys came to live with the couple and their four kids. The family of eight was well known throughout the town as being abrasive, crude, and a bit off-hinged, thanks to the ways of Ken and Barbara. Ken was an alcoholic who used violence and intimidation to get his way within the community and at home. He also regularly raped his wife in front of his children. Barbara herself was no June Cleaver. She ran an extremely strict household and was known around town as a hothead with a short fuse and a foul mouth. Barbara would talk openly about her sex life and hatred of men with her children. It seems as though Kathy may have followed closely in her mother's footsteps by way of personality. The tall, gangly redhead had a fiery temper, using physical violence as a tactic against anyone who rubbed her the wrong way, including a few boys at school whom she easily dominated in fistfights due to her large stature. At the age of 15, with an extremely limited ability to read and write, Kathy dropped out of school to pursue her dream of becoming an arbitrar at the local meat market, just like her father. This was not an uncommon thing from residents of Aberdeen. 
Those who worked at the meat market often left high school in the early years with limited education. However, Kathy's obsession with killing and butchering the animals was far beyond normal. She began working there as someone who would come in after the killings to mop up blood and discard of remaining carcass pieces. During this time, colleagues reported that Kathy would often visit the slaughter rooms during the killings to watch the pigs die. In due time, Kathy was promoted within the meat market and was now tasked with deboning the meat. It was at this time that she was given her very own set of butchering knives. She treated these knives as a prized possession and even hung them over her bed at night. When asked why she did this, her response was, just in case she needed them. At 18, Kathy maintained her tall, thin, but freakishly strong outer shell. When she began dating, she seemed to seek out men who were smaller in stature than her. Many speculate that this was her way of making sure she could overpower and dominate her partners. In 1973, at a simple ceremony, Kathy married a very drunk David Kellett. Very early on in the marriage, David got two pretty obvious signs that he should have turned around and ran. The first being by his mother-in-law. You know, the abusive and abrasive Barb. She told David that he had better watch out and that Kathy had screw loose somewhere. She told him that if he stirred her up the wrong way or cheated on her, that she would easily kill him. The second red flag came the night of the wedding, following a three-time wedding night romp, followed by the still very drunk David falling asleep. He woke up to her straddling him and cutting off his air supply by choking him with her hands. She was livid that they hadn't had sex at least five times that night, as this is the number of times her parents had consummated their marriage the night of their wedding. Gross on so many levels. Unfortunately, David did not heed the warnings and remained in the marriage. The first year or so seemed pretty normal, aside from the wedding night assault. That is, until Kathy became pregnant. One night, while heavily pregnant, David came home late from a dart competition to be met by his wife, a bathtub filled with his burnt clothing and shoes, and a frying pan straight to his head. He was treated for a fractured skull, but by the time the police were able to speak with him about pressing charges, Kathy had already used her narcissistic skills to convince David that he should give her another chance. Shortly after the birth of their daughter, Melissa, in 1976, David could no longer handle the abuse at the hand of his wife, so he moved to Queensland with another woman. The following day, Kathy was seen pushing baby Melissa down Main Street in a stroller, or a pram, as they say in Australia, jostling the baby around as she walked. The community was concerned, and police intervened. She was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital and treated for postnatal depression. After being released, she walked Melissa down the railways and left the baby on the railroad tracks just minutes before the train was due. Luckily, a man named Old Ted, luckily a man called Old Ted by the community, was foraging nearby and spotted the baby on the tracks just a minute before the train passed through. Meanwhile, as the baby was left for dead, Kathy attained an axe and went into town swinging it aimlessly around, threatening to kill those around her. Kathy was once again arrested and sent to the hospital, and once again released the following day. 
two chances now the authorities had had to provide mental health and support to Kathy, but for whatever reason, the system failed to help her and protect others. And to make matters worse, Kathy was immediately given baby Melissa back. A few days later, Kathy approached her neighbor, stating that the baby had a fever and would she please drive them to the hospital. When the neighbor had gathered her own children to make the trip with her, Kathy pulled out one of her knives, cutting the woman on the cheek, and demanded that she be driven alone to Queensland to confront her husband and the other woman. The car took a pit stop for gas, at which time the woman escaped and notified police of the situation. By the time the police arrived, it was too late, as Kathy had already taken a young boy as a hostage. Police used broomsticks, of all things, to disarm Kathy of the knife and free the boy. She was then admitted to a psychiatric hospital. When David was told of the incident and her plan to murder him, he thought it was a good idea to return back to Kathy. She spent a couple of months in the psych ward. She spent a couple of months in the psychiatric hospital, and upon release to her mother-in-law and her husband, the family moved out of Aberdeen to the suburb of Brisbane, where Kathy got a job at another meatworks. In 1980, the couple had a second daughter, Natasha. Four years passed, and as it often goes, the abuser maintained control to the end and was the one to leave the abusive relationship when their youngest daughter was four. Kathy moved her and the girls back to Aberdeen and picked up right where she left off as an arbiter there. After a year, Kathy had a back injury and was, able, was unable to return to work but received aid for housing and disability pay to support her family. In 1986, Kathy met another David. We'll call him Saunders to avoid confusion. This relationship was also abusive. Kathy once again used a frying pan as a weapon and even once killed Saunders' puppy with one of her prized knives as a warning not to cheat on her. Now, one would wonder why these men would continue to maintain a relationship with Kathy given her severe violent behavior and abuse. Many speculate it was for the sex and maybe that played a role but to me, it seems that Kathy is a classic narcissist in that she's able to reel men in, hook them with her looks and charm, and use that charm to manipulate, intimidate, and control. Every incident of abuse is often followed by a honeymoon period full of romance, attention, and apologies, making the victim feel as if the abuser had changed. Very often, fear keeps someone from leaving. Fear of the abuser hurting them or a loved one, fear of embarrassment, or even loss. In 1988, Catherine and Saunders had a daughter together. In 89, they bought a home together. Kathy decorated it using old farm equipment, pitchforks, metal animal traps, machetes, animal skins, skulls, and horns. Soon after buying the house together, the two had an argument that ended in Kathy hitting Saunders in the face with a hot iron and stabbing him with scissors. He then left and went into hiding. By the time he mustered up the courage to go see his infant daughter, Kathy had gotten a restraining order on Saunders from police stating that she had feared him. She then got pregnant by a third man and left him three years later following an affair with a man named John Price. John Price had three children of his own from a previous marriage. The split with his wife was very amicable 
and she described him as friendly and kind, so when speculations arose of John abusing Kathy, she was quick to dispute the rumors. In classic Kathy Knight fashion, she attempted to be the controlling force in the relationship. Violent arguments were common, and it seems as though the biggest argument revolved around the fact that Kathy wanted to get married, but John had no interest. In retaliation, she videotaped some first aid items John had taken from the garbage work that had been thrown away and sent the evidence to his boss. Although the items were discarded when John took them, he was still fired from his job of 13 years, which devastated him. He immediately kicked Kathy out of his home. But in true abuser fashion, she worked her charm and John agreed to start up the relationship again. In February of 2000, John told his co-workers of the ongoing abuse at the hands of his live-in girlfriend and showed them recent stab wounds that she had inflicted on him. The co-workers pled with John to not return home that night, but he feared for the safety of his children if he didn't go home. He told his co-workers that if he doesn't come into work the following morning to check in on him at home. On the following day, a co-worker stopped by John's home after he didn't come into work. After spotting some blood on the front door, the police were called in. And this is where today's story began. Just a quick reminder before we continue that what will be said next needs to be listened to with caution as it is graphic and not appropriate for children. So the night before, John arrived home to an empty house. The children had been sent on a sleepover by Kathy and Kathy wasn't home. He spent some time with the neighbors, then returned home to sleep at 11 p.m. Meanwhile, Kathy returned home, watched a little TV, put on the new black nightie she had just bought, and woke John up for sex. Sometime in the night, Kathy began an attack on John as he slept. At some point, he woke up and fought for his life. According to blood evidence, he got up and attempted to find the light switch. He then managed to make it just outside the front door, but had been dragged back in where he ultimately bled out and died. He was stabbed a total of 37 times in the front and back of his body, cutting through several vital arteries. Police gained access to the house by breaking down the back door. Inside, they found Kathy comatose from taking pills. They also found something that looked like a wet suit hanging from a meat hook in the house. Upon closer inspection, officers recognized facial features on the hanging object and realized it was the skin of a human body. Kathy had skinned John's entire body with precision and skill, careful to remove the skin in one whole piece. It was so precise that the coroner was able to re-sew the skin suit back onto the body for a perfect fit. Kathy did leave one spot intact, however. It was a small square of skin surrounding one of the stab wounds. After the skinning of the body, Kathy decapitated John's corpse. The head was found in a still hot pot cut up with vegetables. On the table were two place settings. The plates were plated up with potatoes, beets, cabbage, and various squash. Next to the vegetables were what appeared to be a cooked steak. 
Turns out they were slabs of meat removed from John's butt and prepared as dinner for two of his three children. On the side of the meals were notes addressed to each child. No one's quite sure why the third child, one of the daughters, was left out of the gruesome meal. A third note was found on top of a photo of John, accusing him of raping her daughter. These accusations were found to be groundless. Upon interrogation, Kathy claimed she had no memory at all of the killing. However, it came out at trial that at some point between the murder and 8 a.m. when the police arrived, Kathy made a visit to the ATM with John's bank card and took out $1,000. Psychologists testified that this proves that Kathy was alert and in control of her actions the night of the murder. Many people speculate that Kathy had planned to eat some of the meat off of her boyfriend's body, but many people believe that the cooking and plating of body parts was an attempt to make a case of insanity. This would show a level of calculation and malice of that of a psychopath. Pair that with the testimony of her own brother just three weeks before the death, that she had had a conversation with him regarding the fact that if she were to kill someone, she would do it in a way to make her look crazy and then claim to not remember the crime. Initially, Catherine Knight pled not guilty. The judge offered each of the 60 prospective jurors to bow out of the trial given the gruesome photographic evidence they would have to bear witness to. Several did choose to be excused. However, before the trial could begin, Kathy decided to plead guilty and the jury was dismissed altogether. Catherine Knight was the first woman in Australia to be sentenced to life in prison without parole. She did appeal once, claiming the sentence was too harsh for the crime, which only adds to my belief that she's a psychopath, lacking empathy, remorse, and a conscience. While Kathy's believed to be one of the most cruel and vicious murderers in Australia, and is right up there in crazy town with serial killers, she's still not a well-known murderer. Most newspapers and media chose not to cover the case at the time, as they thought it was too gruesome a murder to be read over a morning meal. Kathy now resides in Silverwater Women's Correctional Center, where she is nicknamed Nana and is known to be the peacemaker among the prisoners. Regardless of good behavior, however, she will always keep the rank of a level 4 prisoner, which is the highest danger ranking that exists. And when not in her cell, she's always escorted by no less than four prison guards. Resources for today's episode include Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and the following podcasts, Casefile, Morbid, and the last podcast on the left. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is you're listening. Plus, share the podcast with your fellow true crime-loving friends. Also, follow us on IG at Coffee and Killers Podcast, where you can give us your take on each episode, leave me recommendations for new coffee, and check out some of the visuals that I find for our episodes. Find Coffee and Killers, aka Mommy's Self-Care, on Patreon, where you can subscribe as a patron for some special killer perks. Until next time, see you soon, baboon.